Vincent Werbeck's Derby. Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, pause, what a great name. Let's go back to this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That... Last bit sounds a little bit weird, but let's pray, and then we'll jump into this. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exciting bits. We thank you for the bits that uh, challenge us. We thank you for the bits that just sound a little bit odd. We ask, Lord, that you will speak to us. By the power of your spirit, you'll speak to us now through your word, so that our lives may be changed that we may know that we are loved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how you feel about the new service pattern that we've developed today. Uh, In uh, September 2017, we started with a 6.30 evening service. In March 2018, we launched our 10.30 morning service, and today, January 2020, we have launched our 4.30 service. Now, for most of you, you might go, whoop-de-doo. I'm at this service, I've been at this service, I'm here for the first time, I've been coming here for whatever long, this is my, I don't need to know about all the other services, it's not such a big deal. In my head and in my life, it is a big deal. It feels like a significant moment to celebrate and to rejoice. But actually, although it might affect your Sundays or you might be excited or not excited about the services starting, my guess is you're here this evening because you want something. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian or someone who follows Jesus, if you're here because you're just exploring and trying to uh, learn a little bit more, then I'm guessing you're here tonight because that's exactly 
what you want. You want to learn more. You want to open up the Word of God. You want to ask questions. You want to seek. You want to experience. You probably want to make some friends, and you probably want a hot dog. Free hot dog, I should hasten to add. If you're here and you do call yourself a Christian, you're, you're possibly here for similar reasons. The hot dog is still high up in a list of priorities, but, but you're here because you want to explore more. You want to find out more. You want to work out who this person is that you're following and, and learn about how you fit into the whole piece. And you want friendships and support and encouragement. And if you call yourself a Christian, you may have a goal in mind. You may have a kind of sense of direction of travel in which your life is going because you want to learn to become more like Jesus. You, you, you want to learn to live like Jesus lived, to care for those people on the, on the edges of society, to be full of grace and love and mercy, and you want to help people in need, and you want to seek justice, and you want to be kind and compassionate and graceful. And so you're here tonight because you need help with that. You want to experience something that is real, and you want to journey towards something. And so actually, whether you're here at 10.30, 4.30, or 6.30, it, I mean, it might impact your day a little bit and what your Sunday's about. You may have to have you know, missed the football or your afternoon nap. But you're here now, and you're longing for something more. I was listening to a podcast this week, and a sociologist was talking about our change in culture that we have, that we have shifted in over the last couple of decades. And he was talking about we used to live in a no-based culture, and we now live in a yes-based culture. So the no-based culture is, you know, the culture where we... I was going to be rude. Um, that some people might remember... I won't name names, where it was a little bit more regimented. Tom, you can sit back down. It's okay. I wasn't meaning you. I mean, I was. But um, the kind of sense of, uh, no, you can't do things. We live in a world where you can't do things. You can't, uh, you, you, there are rules, there are boundaries, there are things that are, you do what is told to you, and if you're a good child, you do exactly what happens. A no-based culture, rules and regulations and structure. But we now live in a yes-based culture, a society that says you can do whatever you want. As long as you don't hurt anybody else or eat meat, do whatever you want is <laughs> seemingly the culture that we live in. The problem with the yes-based culture is that we lack any sense of stability. And so what's happened as a, as a kind of byproduct of that is we live in a world where we don't know how to make the best of our lives. We don't know how to kind of make choices and to look forward. And so we end up in this world riddled with anxiety and fear and confusion. We're longing for something that is real. Something that is foundational, that we can stand upon and go, this makes sense. This is what life is about. This is where I am headed. And so we come to church, longing and hoping and expecting something real and truthful and loving that will change us, that will 
place us on a platform for the rest of our lives. Well, the good news is that these feelings aren't new. This has been going on for however long history has been going. And in the story that we've picked up, in the beginning of the book of Acts, we find a group of people who will be feeling pretty similar to what we're feeling right now. Just a little bit of background to understand what this book of Acts is all about. It starts with the name Theophilus, this great name that I think is really what, probably where Phil comes from, at least in my head. We maybe will change my name to Theophilus. Um, uh, in my former book, Theophilus, writes the author of Acts. Well, we know who the author is because in Luke's gospel, Luke says the following, he decided to, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Something's obviously happened between the two books that means he's no longer excellent. I'll leave that for you to work out in your head. Um, but Luke is writing to Theophilus. And so Acts is kind of Luke part two. Luke starts by talking about the fact that it's, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And it implies that actually this book is now about the continuation of what Jesus does and teaches. What Luke is saying is that this book is the continued journey, the continued story of Jesus. He's not someone who's now just kind of disappeared and he's gone and and you don't know what. Actually, Jesus is alive. And you can follow him and know him and be in a relationship with him. And he can change you from the inside out. Mainly in America, when you read the Bible, it will call Acts. Sometimes it will call, and it depends on what your translation says, it will call the, the Acts of the Apostles. It's almost like it's saying that this is a book that is the acts of the early church, is what the people who followed Jesus were all about. Actually, I think Luke would, that would not be the title he was longing for. He would be wanting us to know that this is the book called The Acts of Jesus. He is alive and he's real and he is changing lives and he's doing things and we can know him and follow him. And the beauty of this book is that by the time you get to the end, well, actually, the end is quite disappointing. Acts chapter 28 kind of fizzles out a little bit. But we are invited into that story. We get to continue the acts of Jesus in our lives. We're allowed to play our part in this story. With all of that in mind, when we pick up this story of Luke saying to, uh, to Theophilus about the stuff that Jesus began to do and teach, we come across this group of apostles, these disciples, these 12, who had spent the last three years living through what Luke wrote about. So everything that you read in Luke's gospel and in the other gospels, these disciples have experienced. They were there when Jesus turned water into wine. They were there when Jesus walked on water. They were there when Jesus healed people who were lame or who were blind. They were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, literally from death to life. They experienced all of that. They experienced Jesus loving people, caring for the outsider, 
being gracious and kind, upsetting the religious types. They experienced all of that. And then this man that they decided to follow and dedicate their lives to and to live for ends up on a cross. He dies a criminal's death and they are left full of fear, scattered around the place, uncertain about what their future might look like, longing for something that is real and true and loving. And then, as we read the end of Luke's Gospel, we read about the resurrection. Jesus doesn't stay dead. He is alive. He defeats death. And he starts to kind of appear and to show himself to these apostles. He spends time with them. And at some points we hear that over 500 people saw him. And we see all these different moments where Jesus appears to the apostles. And then we read it again here in the beginning of Acts. He appeared to them. He ate with them. He is not a ghost. I'm real. I'm in relationship with you. And Jesus is saying, I'm right here. Now, Jesus then goes on to do three things in this short opening passage that sets up a movement. It sets up a community and family of people that, belong, that we are now part of that has changed the world. But he does it by doing three things. The first thing that Jesus does is that he declares a choice. We read in verse uh, 1 and 2, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. He had chosen. Jesus declares his choice, and it is his choice. Now, scholars debate around what apostles really mean, what the word really means. Luke is probably, in this passage, meaning those 12 disciples, 11 at this point, who had followed Jesus for the last three years. But sometimes the word apostles gets expanded to meaning those who were witnesses to the resurrection. And as I've already said, at one point we know that Jesus showed himself to 500 people. So maybe it's, it's a wider gathering than that. Paul, later on in the book of Acts, as we come across this man, Saul, who meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he then takes on, as he changes his name to Paul, he then takes on the title for himself as an apostle. And as you read on into the New Testament, you read all these understandings that the apostles possibly mean people who plant churches or who are missionaries or who are calling forth what they see God doing in the world. However you want to describe the word apostles, the reality is Jesus chose them. We all long to be chosen, to be invited into a relationship. It's why being alone is such a painful place to be. It's, um, it's why we get so nervous about university and job interviews. Right? So we go to these things and we put forward our best selves and we're longing for them to choose us. And why it hurts and it's can be so painful when we don't get it. Because we all long to be chosen. I still do not understand for love nor money why my wife Anna chose me. Because I know me. I'm grumpy most of the time. 
slightly miserable, and yet she chose to spend her life with me. She invited me in. Jesus chooses you. Jesus invites you into a relationship with him. He invited those apostles in. He chose them. In the beginning of this passage, the good news is that we are chosen. Jesus declares his choice. In our bedroom at home, Anna's got a little poster. Um, It's a picture of a lion, and it's a quote from one of the C.S. Lewis books. I think it's The Silver Chair. And it says this, You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you, said the lion. And we know that um, Aslan represents God. That's what C.S. Lewis was meaning in that story And what he's saying is we might think that we have chosen to become Christians, to choose to follow Jesus, but actually you would not be following Jesus if God had not chosen you first. You are chosen. You are invited into a relationship with him. And knowing that you are chosen by Jesus lays a foundation for your life. It gives you purpose and meaning and safety and something rooted that you can stand upon and say, I'm chosen. I am chosen by the God who has created the universe and everything in it, and he chooses me. The first thing that Jesus does is that he declares a choice. The second thing Jesus does is that he gives a command. We read in verse 4, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, and in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I want to let you into a little secret. I want to let you into um, something that occupies my mind more than it really, really should. I have a desire, a longing. I mean, you can call it a dream. You could even say it's a fantasy. That one day, my children will actually do what I ask them to. <laughs> I mean, that, that's singly the greatest desire that I have in my heart. That I might say to my kids... Come downstairs and put your shoes on. We're going. And they might do it. First time of asking. They might actually just, yes, daddy, come downstairs, shoes on, get by the door, I'm ready to go. That, that's all I want. It's really, anyway. Sorry. Maybe oversharing. Um, Like, I'm not even expecting too much. I'm not expecting them to be, you know, I'm not asking the world. I'm just asking for some quite simple instructions. Some of the times that this drives me nuts is if we go to, um, if we're in a car park and we get out of the car and I say to my kids, just wait by the car because, because I know that this is a car park, right? They might think it's a playground. And so, so when daddy says wait, what they hear is run around, do what you like. And um, I get quite nervous by that. And it, it leads to some stress levels rising within me. And, and, I, and I feel like they've failed to notice that 
I have 41 years' experience of navigating car parks. I actually have an idea of how this works. And so when I say, wait here, there's normally, I would hope, wisdom in that. When they start charging around because they think they know best, it scares me because I do not want my kids, whom I love with all of my heart, to get hit by a car. The father who loves their children will give commands and then hope that they obey. Jesus says to his disciples, wait here. And I wonder whether God sometimes looks at us as a father who's like, please, could they just obey my commands? Could they just do what I'm asking them to do? Because I actually know what's best for you, what will keep you safe, what is right for you, what will give you a better future, and yet you want to just run around when it's a car park. Jesus says to us tonight, wait. Wait to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because John baptized in water, and, and what Jesus, that word baptized means at this point is plunged. It kind of, John would literally plunge people into water, and we've done it here. We, um, the water for us now represents something slightly different from what it was for John, but it's that sense of being cleansed and washed clean. And um, John did it with water. You're going to be baptized, Jesus says, with the Holy Spirit. You are going to be plunged, plunged, into the Holy Spirit. It's almost like God knows what's best for us if we can just obey the command. To be plunged into God himself. Of course, when the command is given, you have an opportunity to obey or to disobey. You get the choice to work out what you want to do with that. And you can continue to run off if you want and do your own thing and try and continue life elsewhere. But Jesus is saying, wait and be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Last year, we were at the leadership conference and we heard a guy called Mike Todd speaking. And and he, I think, let me try and get this right. He said um, the following, what you start without God, you you have to sustain without God. What you start without God, you have to sustain without God. And Jesus is saying, wait here to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you obey, this is all going to come and you can be sustained, not in your power, not in your effort, but in God's power. Jesus declares a choice. You are his choice. He, com- makes, he gives a command. And thirdly, he makes a commitment. He makes a promise. Chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The promise, the promise is that you don't have to sustain it in your own strength. The promise is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power. The Greek word here um, is the word dynamis. It it, it literally is where we get the word dynamite. Explosive power. That's what you receive when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
don't have to do it all on your own. But we are given the Holy Spirit. We're given this power. Why? The passage goes on to tell us. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Witnesses literally means you get to go and proclaim good news. You get to go and say, we have a king. We have a God who has chosen us. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are healed. And we get to go and proclaim that good news. But not in our power. Not in our strength. Not because we have to, but because we have the Holy Spirit in us. A dynamic, explosive power sending us out. In, um, in the history of the Jewish people, the land of Israel had kind of been split up a number of years before we get to this point in, Luke, in, in Acts. And at this point, there's a, there's a north and a south. There's Israel, which is in the, kind of the northern territory, and there's Judea, which is the southern kind of half of the nation. And in Judea sits the city Jerusalem. Jerusalem also includes Bethlehem and Jericho, and that's all in the south. And so Luke says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea. It's like an ever-increasing circle. You'll fill up all of the city, then you'll go out to the next area. You'll be witnesses in Derby. And there'll be witnesses in Derby, Derbyshire, the Midlands, however you want to see our region area called. Samaria was part of Israel in the Northern Territory. The problem with Samaria and the people of Samaria is that they were hated. They represented something to the Jewish people. Because whenever Israel had been um, invaded and then people had been taken off into Exodus and all sorts of different problems, what the, the nations, surrounding nations who had kind of come in and captured the people in Israel, what they did is they would take away some of the people and take them into Exodus and they would bring in people from Babylon or Nineveh or wherever it was and they would intermarry them. And so we had this kind of cross-racial um, thing going on. And then they would be incredibly barbaric. And so the Samaritans within Israel represented something to the Jewish people that was, they, they were full of hatred towards. You just did not associate with that group of people. And Luke is here saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the hated people in the north. Those of a similar race but different. Derby. The Midlands. Scotland. If you're from Scotland, I love you. That's a joke. It's just a really bad joke. I'm really sorry. We love you. Um, you're really welcome here. Uh, this morning I talked about Nottingham, so was, I got complaints about that. Anyway, um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And as I've already mentioned, by the end of the book, by the end of Acts, Paul is literally in Rome. And for the, a Jewish first century mindset, that was the end of the earth. The, and as you read through the book of Acts, you will see, that, and there'll be bits where we can kind of hang the story as we go through it. And it's where we're going to go over the next eight weeks of when, how the gospel spreads in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then we get invited in to play our part in that story. Not in our strength. Not because of anything we've done. But because we are chosen. 
and we obey a command and God gives us power, his power, explosive power to go change the world. We're, um, as you know, we've planted the 430 congregation this afternoon and we had an amazing time this afternoon. But in six months' time, we're actually going to plant a church. We're going to send Andy and Rach and some team, not to uh, the ends of the earth, a mile and a half up the road to Mackworth. And, and we have this dream and this hope and this desire that as they go, this good news, this gospel, this message that they can be witnesses to will grow into the state of Mackworth, an estate of 10,000 people. But if they try and do it on their own, if they try and do it in their own strength, they're setting themselves up to fail, or at least to try and have to sustain something without God. Or we can wait. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can go out in his power to change the world.